You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and today we're going to share with you a presentation at the UCD Clinton Institute Conference on Diaspora Diplomacy and Development. And Kingsley Itkins talked about why diaspora initiatives fail. I'm going to talk about uh, why diaspora initiatives fail. And I've done 30 years of my life engaged with diaspora engagement, involved with it, totally talking up the topic, talking positively about the topic and saying this is fantastic and this is going to be one of the great things in, in life is diaspora engagement. And so this morning I've sort of turned it around. And the reason I wanted to do that was because having been involved with so many different countries and regions and cities and organizations, uh, I kind of picked up why some things don't work. And I think sometimes you can learn more from failures than you can from successes. Um, and this is not particularly about Ireland. Um, I've been involved with a lot of different countries and sort of picked up different ideas as to why things don't really work around the world. Also, I'm a believer in nobody started a large organization. You know, somebody mentioned Apple Computers earlier. Apple Computers started when a 21-year-old kid called Steve Jobs and his mate, Steve Wozniak, um, set up in a garage and put their first piece of equipment together. In a shed down the road, you had two guys who had $800 and they started a company. One was called Hewlett, the other was called Packard. Further up the coast, you had a little hut in a garden that Walt Disney did his first cartoon. Zuckerberg started in a dorm in, uh, in Harvard. Bezos started Amazon in his front room. Starbucks started in a local cafe. It's not just in America. We had a, an airline, took off in 1985 with 19 passengers from Waterford, flew to London, the first ever flight of Ryanair. This year they'll do 120 million. We have two multi-billionaires in Silicon Valley who are from a village in Limerick, the Collison Brothers, with a company called Stripe. And it's also in the non-profit world. Last weekend we had a thing called the walk from darkness into light, where 250,000 people around the world walked for a suicide prevention charity. We have an organization in Ireland called Mensked, where men can come together and do work on carpentry and build boats, etc. It started with one shed in Ireland a few years ago. There's now 400. And the organization I worked for was a diaspora organization based in the United States. Started with a dinner. First ever dinner. We had a fundraising dinner in the Waldorf Astoria in Fifth Avenue. We invited the great and the good. And the dinner was so unsuccessful that the only reason we had a second dinner a year later was to pay for the first dinner we had. <laughs> and that's $550 million ago. So nobody starts a large organization. Nobody starts a great success. Many things start with failure. And we started with failure. We were driven by, because I thought it was interesting what Liam said, we were actually driven by the model of the UJA, the United Jewish Appeal, the organization in the United States that raised billions for Israel. Our idea was, could we tap into the Irish task and raise money for Ireland? We had two very charismatic leaders. One was a guy called Dan Rooney, owns the Pittsburgh Steelers, a football team in the United States. Um, 
ancestry from Newry in Northern Ireland, uh, very passionate about this country, but a total American. And the other guy was a guy called Tony O'Reilly, who was an Irish native who became successful in business in the United States, headed up the H.J. Heinz Food Company. And the two of them came together and said, you know, there is such a thing as an Irish empire, not built by military might or force of arms, but just by the fact, as Liam said, so many people have left this island, so we have this gigantic, somewhat loose notion of an Irish diaspora. Could we galvanize them, engage them, to support efforts back here? We didn't know if it was going to work. As I said, we started with a failure. We also watched other organizations who did it well, like the UJA. Tony O'Reilly was a very funny speaker. And we had a slogan when we started, peace, culture, charity. He said, we're going to change it. Look Irish, dress British, think Yiddish. If we could get those three things going, we might have something here. And so the organization grew. And uh, it's been a terrific, terrific journey in many ways. But we learned a lot from that failure. So I just a few sort of, just a few words and slides to keep me going. One is, first reason for failure is I call it fuzzy maths, which I think was the term first used during the 2000, you know, Liam, uh, presidential election. Yeah. George Bush used it when he was accusing whoever was up against him of using fuzzy math. Fuzzy math is where you just make mathematical claims loosely based on any kind of, of fact. We tend to think that if diasporas are large, therefore their impact will be large back home. Very often people use simplistic mathematics. For example, there's 34 million in the Irish diaspora in the United States. If 5% of them gave $10 a month to help unemployment in Ireland, we'd raise billions. But you know, life doesn't work like that. But people often think quite simplistically like that. In fact, interestingly enough, there's only 143,000 Irish-born people in the United States. It's tiny. It's about the size of a football stadium. It's gone down from 250,000 some years ago. So we use that fuzzy math thing all the time. I hear it all the time. There's two and a half million people who are born in Jamaica live in the United States. And they sort of say, well, all we need is 3% of them to be engaged. But life doesn't work like that. So that's a confusing thing that I think knocks people off kilter a little bit, fuzzy math. Diaspora initiatives tend to start like fireworks. There's terrific enthusiasm, but often not much excellence in execution. Very often these initiatives start brilliantly, they've got great people involved, and then they dribble away. They're hard to sustain. They're hard to fund over a longer period of time. So that becomes a reason for failure. And very often people don't understand the power of philanthropy as a portal. Philanthropy is a way of getting people engaged. And when you get them engaged, you can open them up to a much deeper involvement. But very often, people don't understand that how to go about philanthropy. They're not trained in it. They don't realize that there's a process to it. There's research, cultivation, solicitation, stewardship. That if you want to raise money, you need to have three things. You need to have a great case, powerfully articulated. You need to have a constituency, and you need to have leadership. So people don't often get that about the power of philanthropy. And we now have something incredible happening, which again, people don't seem to notice. And that's the intergenerational transfer of wealth. The greatest cash of wealth in the history of mankind is now in the hands of people aged 60 and over. And they only have three choices what they can do with this wealth. And the number one choice is give it to their children. So if you are a member of what Warren Buffett calls the Lucky Sperm Club, 
just so happens your parents own shares in IBM, you're probably going to inherit huge gobs of money. It is terribly unfair at one level. It's the lottery of life. But actually, there's a lot of people who don't want to give their kids huge gobs of money because you know what? You destroy them. You give a kid 100 million bucks when they're 21, you pretty much destroy that kid. So a lot of people don't want to do that. So they're down to option number two, and they only have three options, not four, three. Number two, you can give that money to the government in tax. And hey, a lot of wealthy people don't like option two. And then you're down to option three. You can give it away. Museum, library, hospital, school, university, cancer, ballet, diaspora. So now there's an interesting thing. Members of diasporas are reaching that stage, only in a small number in many ways, of enormous wealth, and they have to decide what to do. So the opportunity is there. There's a great, great Irish-American, working-class guy called Chuck Feeney, smart, got a college, joined the US Army, went to Korea, fought, set up duty-free systems in Asia, and decided he wanted to give all his money away. He said, I enter this life with nothing. I want to die with nothing. And so he set up a philanthropy organization, Atlantic Philanthropy, and has been giving his money away. Two billion came to this island from a member of our diaspora who accidentally met somebody on a plane one day who was from a university here and said, why don't you come visit? He visited and got engaged. So this extraordinary man, Chuck Feeney, whom Warren Buffett and Bill Gates say is their hero in life, is really the modern equivalent of Andrew Carnegie, the great Scot, who said, he who dies thus rich dies disgraced. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Every country now has to find their Chuck Feeney, and they're there. I see our friends from Kosovo. We had some wealthy Kosovans and Albanians from the United States over last weekend. We were all in Kosovo. And it was fascinating to see how they are beginning to think, because life is about going from struggle to success, and success from success to significance, and in that period, people begin to reflect on legacy, their mark in the sand. What do, want to, what do they want to be remembered for? And so conversations now with these sorts of people can be incredibly fertile. And that's something that many people miss, this intergenerational transfer. I don't think there is such a thing as an Irish or Scottish or Swiss diaspora. They don't exist. There's hundreds of them. We have this notion, and I think Liam said it, that the diaspora is a homogenous group that all think and act and behave the same. No. They didn't like each other when they lived in their home country. Why should they like each other when they lived in their host country? <laughs> They're different. They need different strategies, different approaches. They don't like each other often. I sometimes say diasporas are distant, diverse, diverse, diffused, and disputatious. Diaspora groups all fight. Oh, I'm the, 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 the group that fights the most are Haitians. But the Scots fight, the Irish fight, we all fight. Because it's competitive. And we're different. So this notion that it's all kind of one sort of homogenous group doesn't exist. And there's often a lack of trust. And that's one of the big issues I hear when I'm engaging in different countries. People often don't trust the home government. And that creates a certain tension. They often blame the home government for why they had to emigrate or migrate in the first instance. So trust becomes an issue in reasons for failure. And there's a culture clash. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is, 
you get members of that diaspora become very successful in the United States, Australia, wherever it is. And they become successful and they've absorbed the values and mores and the ways of doing business in the country that they are now living in. And they're the values they want to bring back to their home country, but that actually often results in a bit of a cultural clash. The people in the home country say, actually, no, this is the way we do things here. We don't really want your sort of systems and processes from this where you are. That may work in Dallas, but it doesn't work in Dubrovnik. It doesn't work here. So that becomes a bit of an issue, that kind of culture clash. And companies, and this is why I think today is great, and I love going to these events. We frankly don't have enough of this stuff, where we all come together from different countries. I think you've heard me say before, I'm a founder member of a group called CASE, which stands for Copy and Steal Everything. Just go figure. Who's doing this well? And then see, can you apply it? So we should have more of this interaction. Because here's what's interesting. Diaspora engagement is a non-competitive industry. Somebody who's going to give to Poland or Portugal or Peru is not going to give to Sweden or Swaziland. They're just non-competitive. So we should be open with each other. We should share everything. And there's terrific ideas coming out from different countries. One of the things I did a couple of years ago with one of your conferences was put together a profile of 100 initiatives from 75 different countries. And I've heard a couple more this morning. I didn't know about the French and the tech, and that makes a lot of sense. So lots of countries, we should have these opportunities like today, but there should be great, glorious, you know, international, global conferences and stuff, but there aren't. So I think auditing best practice is something we need to do. Diasporas often feel the only time they're contacted by their home country is when they're looking for money. It's a one-way binary relationship. And what you're really aiming for, often don't get there, is the triple win. If you can get the triple win, the win for the home country, the win for the host country, and the win for the member of the diaspora. And always remember, one of the great motivating forces in life is self-interest. You know, I remember when I lived in Australia, I got to know Paul Keating, who was Prime Minister, and there was a wonderful fellow, and he said, in the great race of life, always back self-interest, because at least you know to be trying, which is a really powerful, powerful kind of mantra. Um, so, so that triple win is what we all need to go for. But so many times, diaspora say, all they want is money. <coughs> I give them some money, and I never hear from them again until they want more money. That's always out there. And there's a tension. There's a tension between people who stay at home and people who leave. So here's what we say. It's so sad. The best and brightest left Ireland. But what does that say about the people who stayed? <laughs> They're not very bright. They're not the best. So straight off the bat, we have a tension. And by the way, these people say, we stayed during the bad times. We paid taxes here during the bad time. You guys shagged off and you went to Dallas, and you went to Toronto, and you made a ton of money, and you're then coming back and telling us how we should run things here. <coughs> Pissed off. <laughs> so there is that tension all the time. There's nearly a contradiction. I remember, I remember meeting this guy in Boston. He said, you know, I wish I was back in Dublin wishing I was back in Boston. <laughs> so people fall between home and host country a little bit, and they're not quite sure where they want to be. Uh, so there's a tension out there on this stuff. Um, and then there's political agenda. The diaspora groups often get hijacked by strong-willed individuals who have a political agenda for something back home, whether it's 
In our case, whether it was you know IRA supporters or whether it was Tamil fighters or whether it's but there's always little undercurrent going on. And very often the desperate groups get hijacked by people and their only interest in is to push particular political agenda. And so what happens is a lot of people have a look at the desperate organization and they say, you know, I don't really want to engage, get engaged. I'm not a political person. I'd love to have my home country, but I don't really want to get engaged there. And so there's always that kind of tension going on within diaspora groups being used for political reasons. And then there's this, the old one about you know, representation and taxation and, and voting rights. Um, and there's such a debate in this country because our diaspora don't really have the vote um, and there's a lot of agitation for people that Irish people overseas should have the vote in some way just like most other countries do um, but I was with a guy who's one of the most prominent Irish members in Canada last week he's a terrific guy and he said, you know, I've been in Canada for 40 years I'm very involved in Ireland but I don't want the vote I don't believe I have the right to vote I shouldn't be interfering with what's happening in Ireland and I don't pay taxes in Ireland on the other hand, about a third of the people in Ireland who vote don't pay taxes. <laughs> so, you know, it's an interesting, interesting tension that's going on in this one. And very often the squeaky wheel gets the most oil, as we say. So there are groups who are making a lot of uh, noise about this topic, but it's a hard one to resolve. But it's certainly one that causes some friction. And then funding. <clears throat> I mean, probably the number one reason why diaspora groups struggle is they just don't have enough money. I mean, um, you know, I used that quote that Napoleon said you need three things to win a war. The first is money, the second is money, and the third is money. You need money to run these organizations and to run them professionally and to have good people. And that's so often the problem. Is where do you get the funding for these things? How do you raise the money? Do you look upon government to support you? Do you look upon private philanthropy to support you? So funding becomes an issue. And if you don't have funding, you can't attract professional staff. If you don't have professional staff, you don't have a professional organization, so it's a, it's a vicious circle. I'm not being able to attract people and offer them career opportunities so they can actually live and work and grow in these organizations. Very often they're sort of living from hand to mouth. That becomes a reason for failure for diaspora groups. And then the issue of what's the role of government in all this? I mean, the role of government tends to be either one as facilitator or actually full-on administrator uh, of diaspora organizations. And there's pluses and minuses. And very often when the market doesn't deliver, um, and it doesn't pop up, I, Scotland will be an example of this, the government has to intervene and set up a diaspora organization. But then there's implications with all of that. So there is a struggle with what's the role of government. And there's also this issue of, uh, you know, is the role of the government and the role of the diaspora to look after the vulnerable in the diaspora or to try and attract and work with the successful? And of course the answer is it's got to be, if possible, it's got to be both. I think the Irish example is quite interesting with the Emigrant Support Programme and a lot of work being done supporting vulnerable people in the diaspora. On the other hand, you know, you have organisations out there, and the one I worked for, the Ireland Funds, we never took a cent of government money in 30 years, um, no taxpayers' money in 30 years. It was important that we did that. Uh, but we were pitching an, a message that would be more successful. So they're kind of quite different strategies, and often people fall between stools between those two. And so often, in the, there's a basic lack of data. And the, the, the three fundamental questions that so many diaspora organizations fall down on is, with respect to their diaspora, who are they, where are they, and what are they doing? They're simple questions, but actually nobody has that information. That's quite hard to get that information. 
So if I was to ask, I remember asking, I was at a, speaking at a dental, annual dental conference, don't ask me why, it's not here to go. I do to do a root canal. And, uh, but I remember saying to them, who knows where all the Irish educated dentists are in the world? And the answer is nobody. Who knows where all the Irish educated architects are in the world? Nobody. Nobody has that information. So, how do you begin even to have diaspora strategies when you don't even know who, who your audience are, where they are, and what they're doing? So that's the challenge for diaspora groups. And this notion that geography is history, this notion, I think, and Liam was articulating this, is that, and I love this notion that it's more important what you do than where you are. So it's more important what you do than where you are. So in the old days, your geography dictated your identity. If you lived in Southern California, that's who you were. But now you can live a hyphenated life. You can be in Southern California and engage with Poland or Greece. You can, uh, you can be here and there. In the old days, absence equaled exile. But now people are living lives where they're over and back, they're engaged, they're disengaged. I had a call yesterday from Melbourne in Australia. Somebody was telling me about an article in the Irish newspaper that day. I wasn't even out of bed. And they, in Melbourne, had read all about it, because they're ahead of us. And uh, so, so this is the this extraordinary thing that geography is now history. This sort of much more fluid sense of identity and engagement and involvement. And people often miss that. Um, and then, I know Katrina's here, but I think it's a fascinating thing, the, uh, your diplomatic corps, because that's the great official network of the world that every country has. You've got embassies, you've got concerts, fantastic. But you've got to ask the question for an ambassador or a first secretary. Is your job to do a great job for Ireland, in our case, or for the Irish? And that's an interesting sort of dichotomy they face. When you're out there, are you out there discussing things with all your other international colleagues and engaged internationally? Or are you at, are you, is your responsibility to look after the Irish people are the local affinity Irish people in that particular city. And there's a limited amount of time and bandwidth you have as a representative. And, and where do you, how do you get that balance right? I've always had one thought that perhaps embassies and countries should have dashed for specialists. That actually that's all they do. And they're appointed to different embassies in their entire role. Because there's a certain skill set involved in this and knowledge and a way of doing it should be just in that area, which would free up the embassy and the ambassador to do other things. So it's an interesting challenge between good job. And then, you know, you don't have to come home to your home country to have a terrific impact. In fact, think about it, it would be much better to be really well employed in a great job in Seattle than being unemployed in Sligo. So, you know, this notion that for some reason you must come back to be a great help as a member of the diaspora, I don't think that holds water. I think it's better to stay away. And I personally, I think emigration in countries like Ireland should be compulsory. I think everybody should be told to go away for a few years. <laughs> kids born today are going to live, on average, 50% of kids born today will live to 100. So why would you stay here for the 100 years? Why don't you go away? Why don't you go learn a language, which we're so bad at here? When I was in Kosovo with, with, with my pals last week, and I was just so staggered by the ability they all had in Edmund and all these pieces, fantastic English, and it's one of five languages they speak. So we don't have military service in Ireland, but I think we should have compulsory immigration. That <laughs> uh, get me into trouble. And this notion that actually, here's what makes things work in life. Look, 
The only thing that beats a really good strategy is dumb luck. And, uh, but diaspora groups, events, activities, organizations can make serendipity and luck happen. So if Chuck Feeney had not been sitting beside Ed Walsh, the president of Limerick University, on that flight, he never would have come and visited the university and he never would have got engaged with doing what he did in this country, which was truly incredible. So just, know, just think about this. It doesn't sound like a very sophisticated strategy, but the excitement of diaspora engagement is about managing luck and serendipity. And luck doesn't happen lying in bed or sitting at your desk. Luck happens when you're in motion. Luck happens when you're doing things. Luck happens when you bring people together. Luck happens when you bring overachievers in the diaspora and overachievers at home and put them together and step out of the way. Great things happen. And 20 people in your diaspora can change your country. You don't need 10 million, you know, doing stuff. 20 people can have an enormous impact. I had a, when I was in the US, my job was to raise 100 million in a campaign for, for projects in Ireland. And we had 7,500 people gave us money. I don't know, can't remember the exact numbers, but something like 28 of them gave 57% of the 100 million. So we all know in life and in business the 80-20 rule, but in, in diaspora engagement it's often 99-1, or even more. So what we call the donor pyramid is a bit more like the Eiffel Tower, or the Seattle Space Needle. Um, and then there's the whole area of affinity diasporas. So when I grew up in this city, it was male, pale, and stale. It was very uninternational, unsophisticated. We were not a very cosmopolitan country or city. In fact, I told a story last night that I, I went into a restaurant when I was living here, and I asked the waiter, I said, what's the soup du jour? And he said, hang on, I'll find out. And he goes into the chef, and he comes out, and he says, it's soup of the day, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's where we were back then. Today, 12% of the United States were not born in the United States. In Ireland, it's 17%. In Dublin, it's 25%. But 33% of the working age population in this city were not born in Ireland. Isn't that phenomenal? So the question I always have to do, does your network reflect the diversity of the economy and society you work in? The answer generally is no. I mean, we've the headquarters of Google here. 8,000 people, 85% not Irish. A lovely little sub-industry is the parents of the kids who come to Dublin and work for Google spend tens of millions a year visiting their children in Dublin. And we know exactly what they do. They fly Ryanair. They stay in Airbnb. They go to Riverdance, the Book of Kells and the Guinness Storehouse, and they go up the mountains to Johnny Fox's pub. We know exactly what they do. They do it three times a year and they visit. And these parents are in their 50s and the kids are in their 20s. So all these sort of unintended consequences happen when these diasporas start getting involved. But there are some harsh realities. Money's the oxygen of diaspora engagement. Nobody's going to give. You have to ask these people. Um, you know, this is a journey about taking people on a journey of cultivation, engagement. You don't meet somebody, they, they support you straight away. So there's some real harsh realities of, of fundraising. And then I just put this last slide. The secret to successful guest engagement without hard work is a secret. It's, 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 it's just a slog. It's hard work, but it's very rewarding. So I've actually just, just in the middle of doing a publication called 50 Reasons Why Diaspora Initiatives Succeed, because I want to cover my bases. <laughs> but it was an Irish, I think it was uh, Samuel Beckett, who was a great Irish playwright, he said, try, fail, 
try again, fail again, better. So I think failure in diaspora engagement can result in inevitable great success. So thanks for listening.